As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to episode 109 of the Keith Law Show. I am Keith Law. I will be speaking this week to Jessica Gross of the New York Times Opinion section about her new book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, which will be coming out on December 6th. Before we get there, I have a couple of new pieces, new-ish pieces. Uh, One, my top 50 free agents ranking went up actually during the World Series, and Right after that, when the Mets gave Edwin Diaz a five-year contract, I wrote a piece about that as well that's primarily focused on the very poor history of four- or five-year deals for free agent relievers specifically. After which, the Padres gave Robert Suarez a five-year deal as well, and I just said, you can pretty much read the same column and just substitute Suarez's name for Diaz's name, and you'd get to the same ultimate conclusion. I also reviewed a new board game, for those of you who are interested in that, for Paste Magazine called The Spill, which is a pandemic-like, if you've played pandemic, cooperative board game where you are cleaning up an oil spill. And it has a very clever mechanism, a plastic tower in the center where you drop in dice at the beginning of every turn, and they spread randomly around the board to simulate the unpredictable spread of oil from a Deepwater Horizon-type oil rig. Multiple people have been asking every November, I post a new updated ranking of my favorite board games of all time. It is 100 games. I can do that because I have something like 300 board games in the house. And no matter how much I try to reduce the collection, it seems to keep growing anyway. Um, Fortunately, I don't collect anything else or I have a real storage problem. Anyway, I will try to get that posted next week before Thanksgiving, since people have already been asking for it and it gives you time if you're interested to look at that and see if there might be anything you'd like to buy or ask for for the upcoming holiday season. Meanwhile, if you are a subscriber to The Athletic, keep uh, your eyes posted for any time there's a major trade 
or a free agent signs with another club, I will post some kind of reaction or analysis. Even more so if it's a trade that involves a prospect, but even if it's just major leaguers for major leaguers, I will post something about that. My guest today is Jessica Gross, author of the upcoming book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, which will be out on December 6th. She is also an opinion writer at the New York Times, which I guess makes us colleagues in the New York Times cinematic universe at this yes, point. Yes, yes. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So for folks who don't know your uh, history, you give a lot, there's a fair bit of prologue in the book and how this book came to be. And obviously you've been writing about parenting issues for a long time. Why don't you go into a little bit of your own experiences through a difficult pregnancy, early parenthood, and how that led to the idea for the book? Sure. Um, so I started thinking about writing a book about the experience of American motherhood, basically in the aftermath of my pregnancy with my older daughter, who is now almost 10, which is surprising to me. And <laughs> <laughs> it happens very quickly. It happens Can very confirm. quickly. My oldest um, is about to drive. So exactly. Oh, yeah. That's too much. Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, so I had a very difficult pregnancy with my older daughter. I had hyperemesis, which means uh, extreme vomiting and nausea. Um, I got extremely depressed because I had gone off antidepressants to conceive because I thought that was the right thing to do at the time. Um, and I had taken a new job because I was ambitious and I thought I listened to Cheryl Sandberg's TED Talk and she said, don't leave before you leave, which means don't, you know, stop moving forward in your career before you even have kids. And I was like, yes, I, I don't want to do that. And so I like to joke that I leaned into a toilet. Um, that is what happened because I was so sick. Um, so I had this brand new job, which was my first sort of bigger leadership position. And I had to quit after two months because I was so sick that I was terrible. I was a terrible employee. I was, you know, incapacitated. So, um, you know, I spent, about six months in bed after that. Um, it was an act of sort of privilege to be able to do that because we had health insurance through my husband, um, but it was the right thing to do for my health. Um, and, you know, I had been writing about, and I, I was at Slate uh, before that. And, you know, even before I had kids, I had been writing about American family policy and how it is so insufficient for most people. And then uh, I lived through it because had I stayed in that job, um, I I would not have had um, very good parental leave because I would not have been in that job for more than a year. I would have had six weeks for a vaginal birth and eight weeks for a C-section, which again, more than most people have paid. Um, so, you know, I just everything felt really um, crystallized to me in that moment about the shortcomings, because it was like, I wasn't just reporting it, I was living it too. And I think that that has remained true uh, since in the, you know, more than 10 years I've been covering this. It's, you know, I have been living some version of it alongside the people I'm reporting on and never, it was really intense, obviously during the pandemic where, you know, the great equalizer of misery for most parents who were trying to, many of whom were trying to hold down a job, teach their kids, um, 
do all of the things in in one single moment. And that, you know, uh, disproportionately that work fell on moms, you know, lots of dads, my husband included, were really, really involved doing their fair share. But, you know, statistically speaking, that it impacted moms more and more moms left work um, to help care for the kids. Um, moms who are already staying at home just were completely overwhelmed by having to also teach their kids, um, which again, I am in awe of people who did that and are like, you know what, I'm going to keep homeschooling my kids. Like, no, I don't. (laughs) God bless those people. Into the open. (laughs) <laughs> I have never revered teach. I already had great respect for teachers, but now I'm like, how do you do this with a <laughs> 25 children? Like I can't do it with one seven-year-old and a three-year-old. Like what? Um, so anyway, yes, I think more and more people sort of realize um, how difficult the United States makes parenting for for everybody, um, and especially compared to our peer nation. So um, something I say over and over again in the book is there is no country that is as wealthy as the United States that does as little for parents. And that is just the facts. That leads into one of the other big takeaways I had from the book, which is that it is a combination, I'm trying to sort of paraphrase what you're saying, and I've gotten this from other sources as well, but it's a combination of real structural absences, right? They're just things we don't do for parents in general, moms in particular, including, you know, from limited or lack of paid leave all the way to the fact that only a few states have universal pre-K at this point. And many countries in Europe have universal, it's not just pre-K, it's preschool, it's childcare, et cetera. Combined with what seems to be just a societal expectation or bias that this, no, that's, that's mom jobs. Those are mom jobs. That is, that's a mom's responsibility. And it's not even just that we don't, it, it, dads aren't even expected to worry about this stuff, which, you know, and it's, you know, I would like to think I'm an enlightened dad. I'm not like that at all. But the fact is, if you grow up in the system, you have these prejudices, you have these biases already in place. And I find it hard when trying to think about solutions, you know, I would go, will go to my state legislatures and say, we're Delaware. We're a blue, bluer than blue state. Why don't we have universal pre-K? But it's bigger than just that. Like yeah. it feels like we're trying to move an entire ship and change attitudes as well. And that's where I get stuck and say, I don't know where to go forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it it has to happen in such a multi-level way, right? So if you're in your own house, there are proactive things that dads can do, just like being aware is honestly one of the bigger things because it's like what I hear from moms all the time is like if they're in you know obviously with a male partner it's like he I'm doing six things that he doesn't even notice have to get done right so like just like the sort of intention to to be aware see what you're see all of the things that need to be done Eve Rodsky's Fair Play is a great book about this that I recommend uh, men and women alike read if you want sort of like um, servicey ideas about how to make your day to day more egalitarian. Um, so you know you're do- you can do that on one level. But what I also hear from parents who do have very egalitarian um, marriages is you have to also train 
the people outside you. So there's um, a woman that I interview in the book who had her husband read The Second Shift when she was in college. So that's a book by Harley Hochschild. It's a sociology book. book. Uh, it was written in the 80s, but um, it is about how women do this second shift of work, which is like if you're working person, you have your eight hours at work, then you come home and you're doing a second shift of childcare, of, of you know housework, all of that. So they have a very egalitarian relationship. And yet, let's say his job was to call the pediatrician and set up the pediatrician appointments, take the kids to the doctor. And then the pediatrician's office would always call the mom. And she <laughs> listen, I don't know. He is in charge. Why are you not calling him? We've told you a million times. So there is some, you know, that you have to do extra work to train the people around you to not default to the mom. So that's like, you know, even if you're doing the best, the societal sort of pressures are there, um, you know, and then sort of, I think what you can do in your workplace is advocate. I actually think men really need to play a role in this because it's almost in most workplaces, the advocates for pay, paid leave are mom. That's and it, then it's a sort of tautology because it gets classified as a women only problem, something only women want. And then they're asking for special favors. And, you know, it sort of it just plays off each other. So I think like you can be an advocate in your workplace if you, if, if there aren't these things. Um, I think, you know. I, I it bothers me that like it things like paid leave are still just heavily associated with women and, and heavily associated with the Democratic Party. But when you look at polling, paid leave is extremely popular. It is among Democrats, among Republicans, among independents, because it's common sense. Like a two-week-old baby needs its parents to be around. Like that's... <laughs> <laughs> and that, that I think most people can understand that that it is a societal good for parents to be able to be with newborns right mm -hmm. like <laughs> right we're not wild animals where it's like you're you're out of the nest exactly. go find your own worms it, it almost feels like i feel like a crazy person articulating that because it's like yeah that's common sense why why do i feel like that's weird to just say aloud but yes m most people can agree that it is important for parents to be with newborns mm -hmm. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, many of these policies that you hint at or outright suggest, they're popular and they're actually good economic arguments, too. If you just want to be a cold rationalist, and I have a little bit of an economics background, but yeah. universal pre-K is pretty clearly an economic 
good because it allows more parents, predominantly women, not exclusively, but predominantly women, to spend more time in the workforce, which is generally good for everybody. And, you know, if you just, again, if you're just a cold numbers person, want to leave out the fact that, yeah, kids need their parents. It produces more, it's more economic activity, it's more tax revenue, et cetera. Like these are pretty obvious things and they're extremely popular when, as you said, in, in polling. And yet not only do I feel like we don't have a lot of it, it is, um, there's not a enough of a push. I don't really understand. I mean, politics is definitely, I'm, I'm a, I watch it from afar right. and think, thank God, you know, covering sports is its own challenges. Thank God I'm not trying to cover politics, especially now, but that, why aren't we pushing more for why is there a lack of of push for this and my, the thing i keep coming down to is well because people think it's a women's issue and we still don't have enough women in government that may be too simplistic that's my outside no, interpretation that's, that's part of it i think it's multifaceted so let's talk about childcare. Childcare is expensive it is going to be you cannot sugarcoat that the government for us to have a workable child care system the federal government is going to have to put a lot of money in up front and there's no way around that. I personally don't want the, you know, budget version of childcare. No. Like, no, like <laughs> we shouldn't skimp on this. This is our children. Um, so it is going to be a big upfront cost to create this infrastructure. And there's no sugarcoating that. So the government never wants to say, yes, this is going to be very expensive. Except like they seem to be fine that the, with the military being very expensive, but it, it's going to be very expensive and there's no sugarcoating that. So that's one. Two, um, I think the people who need it most, who are in it, who have children under five are tired. And so it is very difficult for them to advocate for themselves because, you know, they're in their day to day, just trying to get through, trying to make ends meet. Um and then once they are out of that period of life, they don't think of it as a societal priority anymore. They're like, well, I got through it. And now it's like, I would like it. I think it's good. I have positive feelings to towards it. But if you look at the polling, it's like 15th on a list of voter of things that they're voting on, right? It's like the economy is number one. And even, you know, like, education, like all these things are way above it, right? So it's 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 not a question of popularity, it's a question of priority. So that's number two. Number three is, as you say, it's thought of as a women's issue. Number four, there is a minority of people in this country who believe that women should not be working. Like there are still, I wanna say 10 to 15%. It depends on what polling you're looking at who really believe that women's places in the home and the man is the head of the household, and the and and the nuclear family is the only okay to, way to raise children. And if you are not living that life, they don't want you to be supported in any way. And people with those beliefs have an outsized amount of power compared to the number of people who believe that in in our governments, um, especially in red states. In blue states, I don't think you're going to find lots of people who believe that. But in red states. There are a lot of very, very conservative legislators who do believe that. And so then, of course, you're not going to get any of those people to support any support anything for, for parents because a woman should be home and she should be supported by a man. Like, why is the government involved? So I think it's a it's a it's a 
combination of all of those things. And then I think in the United States in general, sort of we have a very individualistic mindset that a lot of our peer nations don't have to that extent. And so they are more comfortable spending money on these sort of big social issues where in the US it's very bootstrappy, you know, all the things. So that was very long-winded, but no, but that's answered it, your question. It is. Well, because like I said, I live in a very blue state and yeah. we have a, a I think one of the highest percentages of our legislature um, are women, actually. I think the majority of our Democratic House, uh, it's a super majority now, I think a majority of them are women. Um, and uh, I actually, both of my state legislators are women right now. And yet mm -hmm. we don't have it. Meanwhile, states like Florida and Oklahoma, which are obviously right now extremely red, do offer universal pre-K as well as yeah. you know Vermont and Colorado. So it's a mixture and it is, yeah. which makes me more appalled that we don't have it here, right? We have, maybe maybe we will, maybe now is the time for this to, um, for someone to bring this up and put, and push it through in Delaware, but why why don't we have that? We're supposed to be progressive. We're supposed, our yeah. state should be further ahead and we're not. I mean, the political sausage making in each state is mm -hmm. always so complicated <laughs> and it's always like, I, I can't even begin. But what I will say, obviously this is my beat, Almost every week, whenever I get discouraged, I remember that almost every week I see some story that suggests that we are moving forward. It is incremental, but it is happening. So this week, there was an article in the Washington Post about how New Mexico just passed a big budget item that will give daycare workers, paid daycare workers better and provide daycare for more people. Um, in the course of writing the book, two states passed paid leave. Um, so I had to keep revising it. I, <laughs> like, the copy you have might not even be like up to date because I think it was, Mar uh, this might be wrong, but I think it was, it was definitely Maryland and one other state passed paid leave um, while I was writing the book. And so, you know, and that Washington Post article um, about New Mexico talks about how it took over 10 years to get that passed. And activists and legislators who were championing it just kept at it. So it's not going to happen overnight. None of these things are. And they take. And I just have so much admiration and respect for the people who are continuing to hammer at this and work at this because um, it's hard. It's complicated and hard. It's much easier for me to just write about it. Like <laughs> I'm not showing up in Albany. I live in New York. I'm not at Albany every day arguing with people who don't agree. I mean, I'm arguing with people, you know, in the comment section and on Twitter or whatever, but like, I'm not, I'm not showing up to Albany every day. That's not, I mean, I'm a journalist, so it's not my job, but still um, it's hard work. And there's lots of people in this country who do want it and are working towards it and are working, you know, in bipartisan ways. So that always prevents me from getting too depressed when, you know, someone says, some legislator says some absolutely bananas thing about what women should be doing. And I'm just like, <laughs> or how women's bodies work or any, yes. Um, yeah. So shifting gears here, there's a, another really interesting chapter here on social media, which speaking of something you could probably revise like right now as social media itself is somewhat imploding. But although right. I think really here you're talking particularly about Instagram um, among all social media and about 
unrealistic expectations for women and the images that people are, even many women themselves, many women influencers and bloggers are projecting, have been projecting for 10 to 15 years with a couple of very sort of interesting insights, including how many of these women come from Mormon backgrounds, which is very yeah. surprising. I certainly didn't know this, but can you talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, what the issue is that you're identifying here? And do you see any changes go going on now or even going forward to the way that motherhood, American motherhood is presented through some of these unrealistic uh, images? Well, so when the important thing to kind of realize is that the most successful influencers are actually just advertisers, like they are selling us their lifestyle. And usually along with it, either they have their own brands, if they get successful enough, or they are hawking beauty products, they are selling us um, clothes, they are selling us, you know, cookware, whatever it is, they're selling us themselves, which is kind of no different than 30 years ago, the advertising uh, advertisement that you would see in, um, you know, any women's magazine. So it's just sort of like the newest iteration. And the only difference is that they are, there's less of a gatekeeper in terms of who can get started, but there's still the gatekeepers who are the advertisers and the advertisers fund, tend to fund the same kind of person, which is usually a white woman who, you know, has perfect looking children and is like, has the perfect blowout and her life is gleaming bright and there's no mess and there's only happiness and beauty. And, and uh, Amy Schumer just sent up on uh, Saturday Night Live, those big hats, the big, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so it's a very specific look. And I think even though most women, most people I talked to were completely aware that this was not reality. Like we've been in, so social media has existed for over a decade. We're all adults. We understand that it's not real. We still understand that that is the kind of motherhood that is venerated, which is the kind that, you know, never complains, never says, seems to only experience joy and happiness with every step of the journey. Um, you know, it's all effortless. Um, and so, you know, those images affect us, even if we kind of know better. And whether I think, um, I do actually think TikTok is a better venue for sort of the reality of what being a mom is like day to day, because it's a platform that um, is so kind of chaotic. And also um, it is not a static image, whereas Instagram is just a static image, right? And it's just a photograph. It's a moment in time. Whereas, although obviously now there's reels because they're trying to compete with TikTok, but like TikTok is like, you see the mess and you see the humor. And I think that those sort of platforms and accounts are doing a little bit better and people appreciate that. They appreciate the sort of real talk. Um, but that said, I do think that that sort of like perfect vision of motherhood is, is always going to be with us in some form because it always has been with us in some form. And I feel like, um, you're, uh, some of what you talk about in the book also applies, or I guess maybe even is changed exponentially by uh, as we, uh, as our generation gets older too. Now we're not just parents, and I'm obviously is more specific to mothers, to children, but our parents are getting older now too. Yeah. And so you end up sort of, you know, to borrow kind of a, a, a business phrase, 
you're parenting down, but you're also parenting upward. You're managing that relationship now upward as your parents maybe need additional medical care or need additional, you know, or need to move to different facilities as well. And my sense is that that is, it's not just two plus two equals four, right? This is an exponential problem here. And my guess is that that's probably also disproportionately falling on women. I mean, I think it's actually going to be true in my own case. Part of this is proximity because my sister lives much closer to my parents. And so as they reach that point, they're not there yet, but they obviously they will be at some point. That's probably going to fall disproportionately on my sister. And it's going to be more of an, have to be more of an active effort on my part to try to take some of that additional cognitive load or actual labor off of her. And I feel like, again, we are structurally not set up to help women with this. No. And I mean, I actually wrote a column about it a couple of weeks ago um, about how elder care is in some ways in worse shape than the child care uh, industry, because um, again, it is very expensive. It is actually really hard and sad work, which makes it more difficult than in some ways than child care, because it's like, you know, you are ushering someone through the last years of their life where they might be very ill. Um, and you are sort of saying goodbye to a parental figure, which is, you know, that's heartbreaking. So I think that that in some ways, um, elder care work is, is more difficult. Um, and there is almost no safety net. Um, again, it's just like, we're leaving people to just float in the wind, just in their last years. But yes, it's actually usually the oldest daughter in a family who ends up um, taking care of elderly family members. But it is actually something that a lot of men do. Um, I I think the last, it didn't end up in the piece, but I I want to say the statistic was like 40% of elder care is done by men. So I actually think it is, it might be more egalitarian than childcare. But usually because it's not like a couple. It's like, it depends on, if someone has two sons, obviously. Right. (laughs) They just punt it back and forth to each other, probably. Yeah. I mean, but but tons of men are doing elder care. And yeah, I mean, being stuck in that sandwich generation is really challenging. Um, And I think demographically it's happening to more people because people are having kids later and parents are living and the grandparent generation is living longer. So, you know, whereas you might've had a two-year-old at 20, 26, 30 years ago, now you have a two-year-old at 36 and your parents are in their seventies or maybe even eighties. And so it's, you know, the, the sort of timing of everything just ends up in this five car pileup of, um, you know, of needs of, of caregiving needs. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like that is, um, that is a trend that is not changing, right? That is only, it, I mean, obviously there's some upper bound, right? We cannot, we're not all going to have kids in our fifties, certainly, right. but we've sort of drifted over time. Gradually the trend has been, you know, part because women do work and they delay having kids into the, some do into their thirties. And so you end up in this spot where your kids are still in single digits as your parents are reaching right that age. And that is, yeah. Probably that's probably a permanent feature. That's why I mean, I'm so, to some extent restating what you just said, but that we're, this is it. This is our new reality. And again, structures and societal attitudes need to change to catch up. I feel like they have not caught up along those lines. And particularly, and we're going to end up, you know, I, nobody really wants to compare sort of universal childcare to something on the elder care side, but it's not that different 
ultimately. It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think it's important and I've been um, kind of figuring out, trying to figure out the way into writing about this. I feel like the solution are always just more outsourced care. And I think that that's not always the right solution. I mean, often the right solution for a family is for one person, not always the woman, to take a step back from paid work for a while or cut down on paid work, do work part-time. The Again, this is a structural problem that our work is tied to our healthcare is another fundamental problem because it, and it's, it, it creates a lot of inefficiency actually, because if someone like, let's say you work for a place a long time, you have so much institutional knowledge, it would be better for that place to have you cut down your hours than to leave entirely. But because of the healthcare conundrum, usually the options and the way that many workplaces are structured and many kinds of work are structured, it's either you work full-time or you're not working there. Like there's not a lot of part-time work that exists um, and there's not a lot of sort of flexibility around the edges. So often what would be a better solution for families if it, one person could temporarily, you know, for a year or two cut back not entirely, partially, um, but there's just not that sort of give in the system. Um, I often think at some point, you know, Knockwood, um, my parents are still healthy. I had kids relatively young for sort of my demographic. Um, so I had my older daughter when I was 30 um, and my parents are in their early seventies. Um, but I assume at some point I will, you know, I live in near them. My brother doesn't. It's sort of what sounds like your sister. I will, you know, need to take some sort of step back from work to provide them care. And I'm happy to do that. I want to do that. It's just like, there's only so many hours in the day for everybody. Right. Um, and I think that outsourced care isn't always the answer. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That is, you know, they, I mean, again, these are, uh, these are difficult questions to answer. Some of these are, are relatively straightforward. Everybody wants yeah. universal pre-K. Everybody should have universal pre-K. It is a pretty clear economic good. I think that's that one is fairly straightforward. A lot of these are more difficult. And as I said, you're chain, and as you say in the book too, a lot of these are attitude-based. It is not merely a matter of changing a law here or a company policy there, but it is changing the way that we envision motherhood, that we are still so much in a in an outdated mindset and you talk a little bit about this too that the idea of motherhood has itself changed and we appear to have sort of gotten stuck in a mindset about what motherhood means as distinct from fatherhood too as distinct from parenthood that the yeah. mother has very specific gender specific roles and we haven't moved out of that even as say women have moved extensively into the workforce which is yeah. again, again something everybody i think most People, most people, I shouldn't say everybody, it's a pretty clear good for the individuals and for society. And yet our ideas have not caught up. Our prejudices have not started to dissolve as a result. Yeah. I mean, what I talk about in the book is like, as women went into the workforce in mass um, in the past, you know, 40, 50 years, there's just been a wild sea change. Um, we just piled more expectations on top of them. We didn't say like, okay, well now we you can have a more a relationship where you're doing less childcare. It's like, oh no, no, you still still need to do the majority of childcare and and be a martyr and self sacrifice, but also you know, also work and 
also, you know, stay, have, be well, you know, stay fit, look good, get Botox, like all the, we're just like, we just pile with every generation more expectations on what we should be able to do as mothers and what the ideal mother looks like. My guest today has been Jessica Gross. She is the author of the upcoming book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, which will be out on December 6th. You can also find Jessica's writing at the New York Times opinion section. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. The next episode for this will probably be after the holidays, just due to difficulty in scheduling. But uh, I will post any updates to social media, Twitter, as long as it still exists. You can also find me on other social media sites. I'm on Counter Social, and I'm on co-host for now at Keith Law. That is primarily just to see what happens both are kind of in the early stages, but you can also always find me on my blog, meadowparty.com slash blog, or subscribe to my free email newsletter, tinyletter.com slash Keith Law. Those are good places to keep up with pretty much everything I've written, both for The Athletic and for other sites. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great holiday.